Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A growing number of states and tribes are embracing the cannabis business, but the federal government still considers cannabis a Schedule One drug. This can mean murky jurisdictional issues for tribes trying to venture into the market. Still, some tribes are making a go of it and funding social services programs like education and elder care with the revenue. But will the specter of federal raids cloud the future of steady economic benefit? We'll talk more about it right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The tribe with the largest reservation in the United States is keeping its mask mandate in place as the federal mandate for masks to be worn on public transit suddenly ended this week. The top leader of the Navajo Nation is reminding reservation residents and visitors the tribe's mask mandate has never been lifted. It's been in place for two years on the vast reservation located in the Four Corners region. During a virtual town hall Tuesday, tribal leaders and healthcare officials urged residents to keep taking precautions. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez. You know, we are not out of the pandemic just yet. You know that in Philadelphia, the East Coast, you're starting to see some numbers jump up. They're also putting the mask mandate back in place. We have a mask mandate that we've never stopped. And so we're just keeping everybody safe. I know people say, well, masks don't work or uh, shots don't work. But you know what? Look at the data. And I show this to you every Tuesday at 10 a.m. We need to continue to uh, keep our mask on, and uh, I hope we, I hope and pray we don't see an, uh, an increase in cases because of uh, the Easter weekend. The tribe's continuing to see low COVID-19 numbers. As of Tuesday, Navajo Health Departments reported three new cases and no deaths. Other tribes across the country have dropped their mask mandates, including the Blackfeet Nation in Montana and the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe in New York. This week, a judge struck down the federal mask mandate for public transportation. Meanwhile, a senior advisor for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the CDC has created guidance looking at COVID community levels to help support tribes. Dr. Shea Welch says COVID-19 data and trends are tracked in off-reservation communities. We know that tribal community members go from reservation into surrounding border towns for supplies and so forth, and it very well may be that there is a low or a medium or a high rate of COVID transmission in that local county. So we are encouraging tribes to take a look at what we call CCL, COVID community levels. Welch says looking at data and trends in nearby communities may help tribes determine what COVID-19 precautions to take. Masking and isolations and social distancing. And here we are, a fabulous time of ceremonies and powwows coming back together after so many years, right? I mean, it just feels like so very long. And when we're celebrating, we want to come together. We want to practice ceremony. We want to do these things. But again, whether it's the spiritual leaders, the tribal leaders, the community leaders, chapter house, 
they are the ones who need to make the decision on how to keep the participants safe. The tribal community guidance can be found online at cdc.gov. A native-led organization in Rapid City, South Dakota, is encouraging community members to support businesses that stand in solidarity with the indigenous people. Indian Collective and members of the native community are hosting a rally Wednesday seeking to boycott businesses they say have racist policies. The action comes after a hotel owner called for a ban on Native American guests in March. Indian Collective has filed a class action lawsuit against the business, claiming staff members were refused rooms on two occasions. The group says the family is still profiting from other businesses in the Rapid City area. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 29th and 30th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. New Mexico is the latest state to open the floodgates for recreational marijuana sales. The new heavily regulated industry started up less than three weeks ago. Anecdotally, businesses is booming. Two Pueblo tribes have already signed agreements with the state to facilitate production and sales of cannabis. Whether that's legally feasible remains an open question. The state has no jurisdiction to regulate or enforce marijuana use or sales on sovereign tribal land, but the agreements aim to provide the same legal rights to the tribes as any other pot dispensary. The federal government considers pot an illegal substance, and federal law applies on reservations. One of the Pueblos making moves to sell cannabis has been raided twice by federal agents in the past. We're going to get a snapshot of what the legal weed business is like. We're going to get updates on what's happening in New Mexico. We'll also hear from a tribe in California that has years of experience in the cannabis industry and a tribe in North Carolina that's just getting started. And of course, we'd like to hear from you, our listeners. How will recreational marijuana sales change your native community for better or worse? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Joining us here in our studio today is Sean Griswold. He is a senior reporter for Source New Mexico. He is Laguna, Jemez, and Zuni Pueblo. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Sean. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So big news here in New Mexico. Recreational marijuana is legal. What do you think? I mean, what's the overall mood in the state now that it is legal to buy and consume marijuana for recreational use? I would say that the, the mood in the state is actually very mellow. Um, the, the majority of New Mexicans are rushing to dispensaries. Dispensaries are also like having ex, you know, extreme business sales. Some of them are running out of inventory. Um, this was something that they signaled ahead of recreational sales that started in the state on April 1st. 
and um, you know some stores or some stores are closing early because they're just completely sold out. Some stores are also like having to make sure that they're um, prioritizing medical patients because medical patients we still have a medical um, cannabis um, uh, system here in New Mexico, and so they're ensuring that they're still providing um, you know needed medicine for those individuals who are part of the medical program. Um, ensuring that people who are buying recreationally aren't buying out all the product. But ultimately, it's been a quite success here. Okay, so it sounds like they are having challenges meeting the, the demand for all these consumers that are interested in purchasing marijuana. So again, tribes making a move to get into the industry. It sounds like this is the time to do it for sure. Tell us more about these two Pueblos that are venturing into the cannabis industry. Yes. So uh, Picarisa and Pawaki Pueblo are both in northern New Mexico. Um, Pawaki is uh, just north of Santa Fe and Picarisa is um, um, around Taos, Española area. And so these uh, northern New Mexico Pueblos um, feel as if that they have not only the land space, but the agricultural uh, culture to be able to grow and um, cultivate marijuana that could help alleviate some of the supply issues that the state of New Mexico was having. Um, at the be- uh, couple days ahead of April 1st, when recreational sales started in New Mexico, um, the state of New Mexico, as well as these two Pueblos, announced that they had signed an intergovernmental agreement which gives um, uh, these two Pueblos support from the state of New Mexico to be able to authorize their own cannabis control divisions. Um, When you read the documents, it's actually called the Pueblo Cannabis Control Division. And so what this means is that the Pueblos of Pawaki, the Pueblos of Picarese, are able to, following in line as much as they can to the letter of the law of of New Mexico's Cannabis Control Act, um, be able to cultivate, harvest, manufacture, produce, and sell their own cannabis products. Okay. Now, again, that brings in the federal issues here. Um, when I was speaking with the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, she even said she cannot protect these Pueblos from federal raids or federal investigations or federal prosecutions. Okay. And that's what happened there in Picarese, right? So what, what was that all about? So Picarese was one of the first to start into the medical medical cannabis um, industry. New Mexico legalized that in 2015, and Picarese was one of the first native nations in the country to jump into that. And so Picarese... They started by um, developing um, a land, a parcel of land on their Pueblo, um, made it into a grow house, uh, created a lab where they could test the product, the water, the soil, have an indoor grow, and that was eventually raided by the uh, um, uh, BIA. And then from there, there's also been recent instances okay. where... I'm sorry, this raid, what exactly took place during that raid? Oh, they, they, they took uh, more than 30 plants, confiscated the plants, um, shut down the entire operation. What was the value of those plants and just the, the monetary cost? Was it significant? Um, the, the Picarese governor tells me that it was close to a million dollars in cultivated um, crops that they lost. But on top of that, the inbe- overall investment was was upwards over to two, three million dollars when it comes to um, sectioning off the land building the property for it, getting the water, the soil, and then hiring individuals who can like cultivate this as well. So the overall investment was lost. Um, what Picarese ultimately ended up doing and what they continue to do is that they've moved their cannabis operations that they still control, they still manage as part of the business enterprises in the Pueblo. They have moved it off, off the Pueblo. So they have investments with other companies um, that, that don't sell on Pueblos, that sell, you know, in New Mexico under the regular, at the time, under the Medical Cannabis Control Act, now recreational. And so the Picarese are, are now working consistently to operate off Pueblo land. They have a plan to open a dispensary in Santa Fe, a recreational dispensary on top of a medical dispensary that they already operate um, by the summer. And then on top of that, the Picarese have another business enterprise. They own, a, they own and operate a hotel in Santa Fe 
that they plan to turn into what the governor calls a buds and breakfast, where it's going to be an open consumption day spa. Yeah, no, for real. He's like talking about like we're going to do CB, CBD massages, but also like it's a place where you can consume as a visitor. And that's that's another element of the market that that we've where we've seen other states who legalize cannabis as as a gap because, yeah, you can buy it. Right, you, you got a place to consume it. Exactly. Okay. And so, but Sean, I mean, the, these federal legality issues, and, and again, these just seem to keep coming up and coming up. And, and not only do you have issues like these raids, but then, you know, you have banks that don't want to lend and provide credit to these businesses, other challenges. Um, it just seems like there's a, a really gray area here. How do tribes get around this? The fact that it's still illegal on a federal level mm-hmm. seems like really risky to be making these ventures. And and we're seeing a small population take the risk. You know, there's 23 tribes in New Mexico, and we're only seeing two that have publicly committed to joining into the cannabis industry. You know, Picaris and Powaki are the only two tribes in the in the state of New Mexico who have signed on to this intergovernmental agreement, who have publicly committed to creating. To joining the cannabis industry. So the risk for all of them, you know, there's a lot of tribes that just won't, won't completely take it on. Some of it's cultural as well. There's a cultural aversion to, to substance use that some tribes will not touch at all. Some of it is that fear of the, of the federal government coming in and threatening federal funds. Um, and so Picarese, for instance, though, they are trying to use cannabis as a way to um, move past an economic sovereign model where the governor is committed to not relying on federal funds. Okay. Now, Sean, 23 federally recognized tribes in New Mexico, we're only talking about two today, mm-hmm. Picaris and Pewaukee, but what are the other tribes saying up front? I mean, are, are they making efforts to get into the, the pot sales? Are they kind of waiting and seeing what happens? What are you hearing from other tribal communities in the state? It's a lot of wait and see. It's a lot of we're not going to do it 100% committed against it. But um, the economic opportunities are there as well as the agricultural opportunity. You know, our tribes here in New Mexico, we are agricultural based. Um, we go trilly, corn, our crops is, is, is kind of our livelihood. And so that's what that's that's something that the Picarese and the Powakis are, are holding on to is the fact that like there is an ancestral history for us being able to grow and grow off the land. And if cannabis is the new crop that's going to help us elevate to this next place where we have economic independence, that's what they say they want, want to do. Um, so some tribes do see that, but it is a very much a wait and see period. Um, once the federal government decides to, you know, if it does actually decriminalize or legalize cannabis, then I would imagine you would see a lot more tribes jump into it. Now, Sean, the Cole Memorandum, this is getting a lot of attention now. It was a 2013 response to the state decriminalization efforts, uh, guidance to U.S. district attorneys on which marijuana-related crimes to focus on. What are those crimes specifically, and how does uh, the Cole Memorandum affect tribes? So the Cole Memorandum, um, that was established under the Obama administration um, in a period when states were legalizing cannabis. And so it was a directive by the Department of Justice as to how it's going to prosecute um, the, the federal law when it comes to cannabis uh, consumption, possession, distribution, and all such. And so the directive was prioritizing a list of cases that uh, federal prosecutors should focus on when it comes to enforcing cannabis laws. Uh, the predominant one is to ensure that um, there's no uh, cannabis crossing state borders, um, that cannabis sales are not going to gangs or um, any type of criminal enterprises. Um, so they're really looking at trying to, you know, go less at the individual user, more at the like criminal enterprises that often benefit from cannabis sales or black market sales. And shortly after the Cole Memorandum came the Wilkinson Memo. The Wilkinson Memo was another directive by the Department of Justice that gave 
in a sense, affirmed the Cole Memorandum, but it was specific to Indian country because um, you had tribal leaders who were like, okay, the Cole Memorandum says this and it offers some protections and it kind of changes things for how um, um, uh, states who have legalized or decriminalized marijuana are gonna go about cannabis now, but we're still uncertain about how this affects us as tribes. Now, what's very important to understand, and I think this is also where it comes to the, 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 the uneasiness that tribes have in jumping into this industry, is that both the Cole and the Wilkinson memo were actually rescinded by the Trump administration. And so while the Department of Justice and it's up to various U.S. attorneys to determine how they're going to enforce cannabis, um, some of them are following the guidelines of the Cole and Wilkinson memo, but they're not officially directed by the Department of Justice. And so there's that kind of like gray area, gray area, yeah. but also like it's, it's at the will of who's ever in charge and whichever administration determines how they're going to enforce marijuana. And that's how it's going to be un until the federal government either decriminalizes or legalizes it. Okay. Well, we're going to have to take a break here in, in about another minute, but, but another issue I want to talk about when we come back is just kind of the impact on, on the culture of marijuana. And this is something that's really fascinated me over the last few years as we, as we have seen more and more states uh, legalize marijuana. And, uh, you know, today is uh, April 20th, and it's actually no secret, uh, not coincidence, that we're hosting a show on on legalization of marijuana on 420 Day. Obviously, it's a big holiday for some people. But um, we're going to talk more about that as well and kind of the impact on the overall culture going forward. Folks, if you've got a question or a comment, if you're listening today and you want to chime in on what's going on here in New Mexico or anywhere else in Indian country with regard to legalization of marijuana, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. Back right after the break. The FBI is seeking leads to try and find who's responsible for spray painting graffiti over petroglyphs on federal land near Santa Fe. It's the latest in the ongoing threat to places and items that Native Americans consider sacred or important. We'll talk about some recent incidents and what government and tribal officials are doing to protect important items and places. That's on the next Native America Calling. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are getting updates on the expanding market for recreational marijuana. New Mexico stores started selling recreational marijuana for the first time this month, and at least two tribes are making moves to join in on the venture. But this specter of federal jurisdiction is hanging over their plans. So what do you think? Call in 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. And before we went to break, we were talking with Sean Griswold. And Sean, I, I want to ask you again, today, 420 day, we're having a show about marijuana. It's uh, a day of significance for marijuana users for, for a longstanding day. And the city of Albuquerque, uh, they didn't last year because of COVID and the year before, but this year they were doing, having plans to have a 420 fest. And it's a big event, annual event, uh, vendors, different people kind of celebrating pot culture, if you will. And this year the city did not issue them a permit. And I know the organizers were really disappointed, upset. And I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? Why didn't the city go ahead and, and, and let them have have this uh, fest that they have, they've had for so long? What, what's changed now that it's legal? Why, is, why are they not allowing it? Um, so the city says that the, the permit was asking for an afternoon to close off downtown Albuquerque to have the festival. And so they said we can't feasibly shut down downtown on a Wednesday on an afternoon because people work. And so that's that's the explanation. 
And that's quite reasonable to me, if I'm being honest. Um, perhaps it was poor planning on the organizer's part, but um, I remember being a cub reporter even before I started working in news. I'm from Albuquerque, and this 420 festival was always loosely organized. It's always happened. It's always gone on. I remember people meeting up just at UNM, kind of like a ragtag, like a couple dozen people who would meet up at Central and University and down in Albuquerque and then march up the street um, celebrating cannabis. And, and it's like, perhaps that's still going to happen today. Um, but the overall culture of in and of itself, I think, is is mostly embracing. I mean, you're seeing cannabis dispensary ads in newspapers, on television, on radio. Um, the storefronts are some of the nicer, more more recently developed um, business enterprises in the city. Okay. Um, they're providing a bunch of jobs. And so I think ultimately the culture is quite accepting of what's happening here. You know, growing up in the 80s into the 90s, uh, there was always this taboo you know, of marijuana. And it was kind of this exciting things that some people partook in and the whole fact that it was against the law and um, all the culture that kind of sprung up around that. And now that's just been completely upended, right? Because now it's legal in so many states and it's becoming institutionalized. It's becoming mainstream. And I'm just curious, like, I'm just going to use this phrase, you know, some of these old school hippies that, you know, were doing, you know, smoking pot back in the day and, and, and doing their own thing. And, and now that it's it's legal, it seems like it's kind of not maybe as cool anymore. Is that is that true? Is that possible? How do some of these old school potheads, how are they feeling about this? Well, I'm curious. On top of that, what's funny is that um, um, they often also like have concerns and critiques about the quality of the weed. Like it's too strong nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like like the cultivation of it has, has, has reached the scientific level where some of the OGs will tell me like, no, this is too strong for me to smoke. <laughs> I don't know how y'all do this. But because of the enterprises that are happening, like you're seeing not just the flower that is smoked, you're seeing people who use the rubs, you're seeing people who use edibles. There's a whole different ways to consume it that people use for medical purposes and legitimate medical purposes. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's what you're seeing from the culture is like the people who back in the day were like had to keep it hidden because of like the stigma that was around it are just now our grandparents who are able to enjoy it without any concern because it's legal wherever they are. Okay. Well, if you're one of these OGs that Sean mentions on the show today, give us a call. We want to hear what your thoughts are on edibles and uh, all these topical ointments and things like that just completely change the way people consume marijuana. Please call in 1-800-996-2848. Call us now. We'll make sure we get your comments on the air. Let's bring another voice into the conversation now. Joining us from Santa Isabel in California is James Bucaro. He is the general manager of the Santa Isabel Botanical Facility, and he is a member of the Ipe Nation of Santa Isabel. James, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you, Sean. I'm, I'm uh, glad to be part of your show, and I'm um, looking forward to talking to you about this topic. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show. And James, uh, Santa Isabel, you folks ventured into the cannabis industry back in 2017, so you're kind of old school now. You've got five years of uh, experience. Uh, give us a walkthrough. Uh, how did the tribe make this decision, and how has it turned out for you? Yeah. Um, uh, so to, to kind of give you a little bit of a background on um, our operation, uh, you know, we uh, we had a casino um, that, you know, we had trouble getting off uh, the ground, you know, probably due to the economics. Uh, and uh, we ended up closing it in uh, 2014. Um, and then um, in about 2017, uh, when that coal memorandum came out, you know, uh, that gave us an opportunity to take a look at, you know, getting into the cannabis industry. Um, and so, you know, we essentially, um, 
created a regulatory agency that, you know, uh, would kind of oversee, you know, and regulate ourselves at a high level. So, you know, we had a director, uh, we had a compliance department, we, we built in a, a surveillance system and a security system. And, um, you know, as, uh, you know, Mr. Griswold mentioned, you know, it was kind of uncharted territory. We didn't know how things were going to go. Um, we heard stories, um, you know, uh, and we wanted to try and do it in a, in a matter that would, you know, would not put a lot of liability on us if it did not work out. And so the initial model uh, that we decided to go with was to take the land that we had, uh, which was the former casino property, and, you know, lease parcels of that land to various, you know, enterprises that were trying to get into the, you know, at that time what we thought was the the start or the birth of the federal tribal um, uh, cannabis market. And so what we did is we leased these, uh, you know, uh, parcels of land, and then essentially what we would do is we would be sort of like a landlord uh, with uh, regulatory oversight, and, you know, we would uh, oversee these enterprises, make sure that they stayed in compliance, um, and then, you know, we would charge a tribal tax on top of that. Uh, but what ended up happening is uh, in the state of California, uh, and we didn't see this coming. We thought, you know, a lot like casinos that could operate on, you know, tribal land, you know, it's the same thing. You know, it's a cookie cutter, but, you know, it's a different product. You take cannabis, and it's also operating on tribal land. And so it, it looked like it might have been a very lucrative industry, which it re really still is. But uh, what happened in the state of California in 2016 is they legalized it. And so that essentially changed the whole industry in the state of California. And so, you know, what at that point, it was no longer really a tribal market. It was a California market. Uh -huh. And so what, what we tried to do is we tried to go to get a, a state license, a recreational license. Um, but in the state of California, you know, they didn't want to recognize our sovereignty, you know. And so they want us to essentially go through the same process that any anybody else would. We would pay the same state taxes, the same same licensing fees, um, and you know we felt that that was unfair. You know, grounds for us is that we have our tribal immunity, and so there was a big political you know, stance right there uh, where tribes felt like they were shut out of the California recreational market, and so okay. um, there was some a lot of lobbying going on. There was groups like Sanaka that were formed that literally went to the governor's office and showed him, you know, like all the regulatory oversight that we had and, you know, all the people that endorsed us along the way, you know, um, okay. you know, and so. James, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I want to know, um, this is fascinating and I really appreciate, you know, some of this, this legal background as well, but um, currently, I mean, you, you have this cannabis campus and you're in business. Can I mean, how is it going financially for the tribe and in, in, in terms of the markets that you are able to access the sales you're generating? What's been the response? Uh, well, the response has been real positive. Um, you know, we were, we we're able to, to, you know, give back dividends to our tribe. Um, a lot of that money goes to, you know, governmental, uh, e tribal essentials, you know, police, fire, roads, uh, social services, et cetera, youth programs. Um, and so it's been very beneficial uh, in that market in, in, in that sense. And okay. we're still continuing to try to, you know, 
evolve ourselves and get bigger. And can you share and more uh, diversified about what kind yeah. of revenues that um, that, that you are generating there based on the this this new industry, this business, cannabis? Um, I don't know if I can really disclose that, but it, I, I do feel that it would be somewhat of what you know our casino might have projected, you know. Uh, and again, as we continue to diversify, you know, we we're very optimistic that we'll continue to grow. Okay. Now, James, we just heard Sean share this story of one of the Pueblos here in New Mexico that was raided by these federal agents. Um, do you have concerns like that where you are there at Santa Isabel? Yeah, that's always a concern. And, I, the, you know, we constantly hear stories uh, about that. I think one of the things that, you know, we did differently is that we put the infrastructure uh, in front, the compliance. So when we went and had conversations with our local law enforcement, the DEA, uh, the county supervisor, uh, you know, the uh, governor's office, you know, we showed them like, look, we have oversight on us. We have a compliance department. We do offer security. Um, and, you know, when the state was actually drafting their regulations, you know, they took parts of our regulations and actually added to their regulations. So I think there is a level of comfort knowing that. And I think that that might be something that we may have done different that other tribes may have. Okay. And I'm curious also, uh, there at the community level, the feedback, I know I read one article and, and there were some community members initially that, that were not happy. They were hesitant about the tribe getting into this business. Uh, now that you've got uh, five years of, of, of a track record, where's the community at? Are they supportive? Well, I, I think you're always going to have some someone who's optimistic uh, or, or against, excuse me, uh, the idea of it. Um, but you know, through education, um, you know, through, uh, you know, the board giving updates on where we're at with the revenue streams. Um, you know, I think that more and more people are becoming more optimistic about it. Uh, the fact that it is, you know, now recreationally legal and the fact that this medicine existed with our ancestors, I think more and more people are understanding it through education. Okay. And James, another thing that really interests me about um, these new marijuana businesses that are um, starting all over the country is is the whole image of branding. And, you know, so often we talked earlier about marijuana culture and, and I think of like Caribbean flags and I think of, you know, some of these kind of stereotypical images of what we think of marijuana. And I think uh, now that it's going mainstream, now that it is legal, I, I think a lot of businesses, a lot of ventures are really taking a look at how they they brand their products and their businesses, how they market them. Uh, so they don't maybe focus so much on some of these old school stereotypes like we talked about earlier. So I'm curious, I know you have this cannabis campus there at Santa Isabel. And, and how have you folks branded this business in a way that still is attractive to consumers, but maybe doesn't tap into some of these stereotypes that I think can have some negative connotations to to many people, uh, both tribal people and non-tribal people? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, there, I think I can address it in different layers. I mean, the first thing is, is that, um, you know, when we started, we, you know, we were very medical conscious. Um, and a lot of the things that we did or any of the advertising we put out there, you know, was more of education and medicinal, uh, you know, uh, education and, and purposes. Um, that's the, the first thing. The second thing is, is that, you know, I do believe that, you know, tribal gets thrown out a lot uh, in the industry. And it doesn't truly mean that it's Native American tribal. Um, and, you know, so 
we do have a distribution um, and so Cal First Nation, and we do brand it as a tribal products that are grown uh, on tribal lands or manufactured. Uh, but we try to do it tastefully. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to offend any of our elder or seniors. Uh, and we want to put a message out there, though, that it does, it is, you know, uh, separate from the California market, and it truly is a tribal brand. Right, right. Well, James, thank you so much for that background. Really, really interesting developments there in California. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us from Western North Carolina is Jeremy Wilson. He is the Government Affairs Liaison for Principal Chief Richard Sneed and Chairman of Koala Enterprises, LLC. He is a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and he's been on our show before. Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely, Jeremy. And uh, last August, uh, there in North Carolina, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians voted to begin producing and selling medical marijuana there on your tribal lands, which are referred to as the Koala Boundary. When do you anticipate this new dispensary will be open for business? So we have, um, you know, we, we are anticipating this to be a pretty massive industry for us. You know, given that we don't have any uh, competition or any real competition because the state is still illegal and most of the surrounding states besides uh, Virginia are illegal as well. Um, But we are um, moving fast and furious, but diligently at the same time. But we are hoping to um, our goal is to open our dispensary in uh, in January. So that that is our goal. Uh, The dispensary that we are looking to um, position in we are expecting it to be one of if not the largest dispensary in the united states um so we are very excited to uh to offer that opportunity and but but that that is our that is our deadline goal okay so january of 2023 and um you mentioned uh the competition issue and what is we're gonna have to go to break here in, in about a couple of minutes, but I just want to ask you real quick, what is the status of medical marijuana in North Carolina? And because um, there is an effort to legalize it, right? Yes, there, there is an effort to legalize it. And it, it, it's, it's progressed further over the years. Um, it's kind of like a volleyball right now. You hear, you hear one week that it's closer to legalization. You hear the following week that the house isn't on board. So it just kind of it's kind of just a blow the wind situation right now. I, I don't foresee it uh, passing this year, uh, which is you know great for us. But um, we we don't I don't expect it to pass this year. But you know I, I could be wrong. But as it sits right now, the the latest is that the House uh, in General Assembly is not uh, fully on board. Okay, but this is a risk that the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians are willing to accept, then, huh? Well, it, it just defines how we uh, define risk for us because we have um, done a lot of the diligence. We have met with a lot of uh, state legislators, um, many of them being GOP legislators. We've talked with the attorney general for the state. We've met with uh, Governor Cooper's office. We've met with our Western District's office, Western District Attorney General's office, and so we have not received any any resistance. We've not had any red flags being waved. We've We've just been very transparent about what we hope to uh, accomplish here, but we also want to be transparent to them that they they respect and recognize our sovereignty, 
and they the, the clear message for for most uh, legislators is that you know we can't tell you what to do, uh, you know as, as long as you do it right, you know we're okay with it. Okay. Um, but we we want to we want to be transparent. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, folks, if you got a question or a comment, one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. That is the number to call. And we're going to hear more from Jeremy Wilson Plummer right after this break, and uh, these new efforts to open what could be the largest dispensary in the United States. You're listening to Native America Calling. We'll be right back. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are talking about the economic development opportunity for tribes selling marijuana. And despite legalization by states, the federal government retains jurisdiction on tribal land. What insights do you have? Is Legal Pot a viable business venture? Call in 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Still plenty of time to get your insights and comments on the air. And before we went to break, we were talking with Jeremy Wilson of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and he was describing uh, efforts to uh, build and uh, open up a new dispensary there on the Cherokee, Eastern Cherokee uh, Reservation lands there in western North Carolina as early as January of next year. And Jeremy, in terms of the economic impact, uh, what does the tribe anticipate that will be in terms of revenues, jobs, maybe even tribal levies? What are you folks looking at? Well, we certainly believe that this is going to be uh, the closest thing to uh, gaining revenue for us. Uh, we have been a very successful uh, enterprise with um, Harris Cherokee Casino in our two properties here in Cherokee, North Carolina, and in Murphy, North Carolina. Um, that's where our smaller casino is at, but it does very, very well. So we are the the a large reason why we're getting into this is is mostly because you know we have a rising competition um, in different parts of the state and perhaps you know surrounding states that are looking to get into gaming. Um, certainly, that's going to be an impact to us. Um, and and the uh, the amount of money that we have to put into our resources here to serve our citizens. Um, we don't want to jeopardize that. So we have to look for different avenues and economical diversification. So for cannabis and the excitement around it, uh, this will definitely present us an opportunity that could be, you know, well worth um, close to a billion dollars or to, um, to half a billion dollars. I mean, there's no crystal ball right now, but, you know, we, we have that opportunity. Okay. So you mentioned maybe a, as much as a billion, half a billion. This would be annual revenues, perhaps? If, if we are able to meet the, uh, the, school, the supply versus demand, um, I know there's going to be a very high demand. Um, maybe, maybe not those numbers just yet, given that it's medical. I think that's more realistically recreational. Um, but we, we definitely anticipate to be, to be a, a very large uh, revenue stream. Okay. And I know pre-COVID, uh, the, the casino properties that you mentioned, I, th I think they were doing about, about half a billion a year, right? Is that, is that correct? It's in the ballpark, yes. Okay. Now, another issue, uh, 
Jeremy, you're there in Western North Carolina. You are in the Bible Belt. That is a, a pretty conservative part of the U.S. And I, I know even there on, on the Kuala Boundary, you have a lot of folks that have a very conservative mindset with regard to issues like that. So what has been the pushback overall there at the community? Well, when I was a council member back in 2017, I brought this issue up in, um, in a discussion that we had with our um, hospital board. And uh, they were, we were on a discussion about opioid overdoses and, you know, the drug issue, uh, mental health awareness, et cetera, et cetera. And so I brought the discussion up, and, of course, the whole room just shut down. You know, I mean, it was just kind of, it was kind of a no-no talk back then. So I, I led the uh, initiative to introduce um, hemp to the community and educate people about what the difference was between marijuana and hemp. And over the course of the last five years, um, all that's kind of benefited us. So we went from we, – we really went from a, a place where people were just like, you know, man, I don't know about this, and now it's just like, when is this going to happen? So the more information, the education we present to our communities, the more people start to understand it. And they are starting to see more data out there that supports people who deal with chronic illness, um, mental health issues, um, how marijuana has been able to be more benefit rather than the stigma of it being, um, being a, a criminal, a, the devil's lettuce, I mean, all that stuff. Well, speaking of, of those those health needs uh, with regard to, to to medical marijuana, who will be able to buy marijuana from this Cherokee dispensary? So, you know, obviously we would love to service every single person, but right now there is that, that I'm aware of, there is no medical jurisdiction that serves its in, or a, a customer base outside of its state. So we are looking at uh, providing for our um, Cherokee enrolled citizens as well as North Carolina citizens and accept those uh, from other states that have a medical marijuana card, um, from states that are legal with medical. Um, we will accept those cards uh, from, from those um, citizens. So that, that's kind of our market right now. Um, you know, I, I hopefully and then do anticipate that it change course uh, somewhere down the road. Okay. And uh, what will be the, will there be a minimum age there, 18, 21? What's the thought on that? So we we uh, we actually started the age requirement back when we decriminalized because we did have some council members that were um, concerned about you know age um, you know age groups uh, being able to possess. Uh, we are we are one ounce possession. So when we decriminalized, it was decriminalized up to one ounce of possession and use, and uh, but it had to be defined by 21 years or older. So we are going to maintain that um, you know one, one ounce possession, not to exceed not to exceed six ounces per month. Um, but you have to be 21 years or older. Okay. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for all that background. And, and we're going to be watching closely uh, as this whole business venture evolves there in, in North Carolina. And I uh, hope we can have you back on the show again to give us an update in the future. I'd like to go back to James. And, and James, we just got done listening to Jeremy. He described uh, this really, really favorable environment in which they just don't, the, the tribe doesn't face a, a lot of competition and they're really banking on that niche market to really have this whole industry explode there for the Eastern Cherokee. But uh, James, you don't have that luxury there in California. You face a, a really competitive market. So I'm curious, James, how do you, how does Santa Isabel compete in, in a market that is so saturated like that? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, so, um, our dispensary, we're, we're located in a rural area, um, uh, but we're also located in the beautiful mountains, uh, the San Diego County. So we, we get a lot of tourists up here, 
And so for the, the Mountain Source Dispensary, uh, that's our customer right there. It's our locals and our tourism that, that keeps us going. Now, bigger picture, you know, we've made a decision to stay in a tribal market, a cannabis tribal market. And what that means is that right now in the state, there's currently five dispensaries that are operating throughout the uh, state of California on tribal markets. They do not have state license. They have a tribal license. And so we are now distributing uh, and products to these other dispensaries, and we're trying to grow the tribal market. And so we hope that, you know, within the next couple of years, there's five now that it, you know, doubles in the next couple of years, and there's 10. Uh, by staying in the tribal market, we're fully integrated and, you know, we're vertical and we can control our margins. We can control our industry and we don't have to waiver our sovereignty. Uh, and it's a lot more lucrative than getting into a very competitive uh, recreational market in the state. Okay. Well, we have a caller on the line, Judy, listening in Kamii, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Reservation. Uh, K-I-Y-E is the station. Judy, thank you so much for calling. You're on the air. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate this discussion being held, and I um, I really look forward to, to my... What I want to contribute is, um, well, I live here on the Nez Perce Reservation, it, we took action as a tribal people to um, approve it. We legalized it, but our our governing authority, the Nez Perce Tribal Executive Committee, never took the action to, you know, recognize it. So it remains illegal for us on our reservation and within the state of Idaho. So when we travel from, say, the state of Washington to our homes, about a 70-mile, what we call the gauntlet, we still face repercussions such as fines, going to jail, you know, and just that uh, it's basically it's an act of terrorism for many people, you know, because it's usually the state police that will stop us. And we, you know, just have a lot of fear from the state police. But in addition to that, I'd also like to share that, you know, we have uh, my daughter and I and some of our family, we've created a magazine called Tribal Hemp and Cannabis. And it's going not only uh, nationally, but it's going internationally. And so right now, my daughter, Mary Jane's over there in New York advocating for cannabis, for for the the healing aspects of it, as far as, you know, um, we need to look at what's, what's happening is our sovereignty is, it's what we have as a leverage, but they're holding us back, you know, and, and um, it's everybody else out there getting rich off this industry, you know, and it's a sad thing because in, in the early 80s, my mother was sent to a federal prison in... Uh, for growing uh, cannabis on her own allotment. And so here we fast forward to 2022, and we've got the whole country is basically making a huge profit off it. Mm -hmm. And here we are in Indian country still facing fines and jail and, and repercussions. And so it needs to get, the field needs leveled out. So thank you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, Judy, well, thank you so much for calling in. And that's really interesting. You mentioned your your mother, uh had, serving time in, in federal prison for growing marijuana. And I want to ask Sean, um, criminal expungement uh, for old marijuana convictions. How's that working out? Uh, yes. So New Mexico's uh, when New Mexico, the state legislature legalized cannabis for recreational sales, it was very, very adamant about making sure that it was going to expunge criminal records for any individuals who had uh, possession or consumption charges against them. And so the expungement process um, is ongoing. 
um, people have to apply through the state or they'll receive a notification from a, a, a court that will allow them to fill out the application that can then like service that, that, that the court can process that application for them to have that expunged from their record. Uh, but that's ongoing and that's only for state crimes of uh, medical cannabis. And cannabis, that's only here in New Mexico. So do you, do you know like other, other states, how they're addressing that? Uh, I know Colorado, for instance, um, it came on the back end. So Colorado, for instance, they legalized marijuana consumption uh, recreationally. And then several years later, they had to fight to get the expungement bill process going in place. So New Mexico was very certain to make sure that that was happening as we are. And it was done in, in a level to be um, equitable to provide that like social justice for individuals as, as a last caller just mentioned, because there are individuals who have like faced life consequences for cannabis. Well, in the meantime, New Mexico is like, all right, let's try to correct that. If we're going to start making money off of this, let's make sure that the people who have these charges on their record can, can, can get some relief. And as the caller mentioned, uh, native people, other people of color, uh, traditionally have really suffered from for some of these marijuana convictions in the past, have they not? Yeah, and that's still a concern for the Picaris people. Like, you know, even with legalized cannabis in New Mexico, the concern is that they feel as if they're being targeted by federal BIA police officers. Um, they're not really in concern with state police officers, but there is a jurisdiction that they're part of uh, an office, a BIA office out of Oklahoma has jurisdiction over the Picaris here in northern New Mexico. And those are the officers that are coming into the state, is what the governor of Picaris says, that are coming into the state and sending officers to do, um, is recently, as a month ago, when I was out, when I was out on the Pueblo, um, there was a recent incident where a, a, a citizen had been um, um, stopped and cited for uh, possession of, of seeds, and he had his seeds confiscated. And and so, yeah, there there is a targeted harassment that the people in the Picaris feel as if they're facing every day. Okay, and with reg regarding this you know, legality issue at the federal level and these raids we're talking about, I want to ask Jeremy. Because uh, I had asked James if, if that's a concern there at San Isabel in California. And, and Jeremy, do you folks there in North Carolina, do you have concerns about a federal raid um, with this new development you're working on? Uh, I mean, the conversation certainly comes up. And I've you know, had this conversation with uh, tribal council. And, you know, that there hasn't been a, a massive, um, uh, you know, alarm or red flag as long as because what, what I've learned. Um, in, in different trainings I've been to and different areas I've been to where it's, you know, it's legalized and, and tribes that are getting into it. One more defining the matter is, is how regulated your efforts are. And, you know, for us, North Carolina, North Carolina bill, I think it's about 17 pages long and our regulations are 42 pages long. So we, you know, are definitely a little overregulated, but we, we, we prefer to be that way because we want to make sure that every, every I is dotted and every T is crossed. And we have created separate entities that the tribe itself is not being both the regulator and the operator. So we've had to create a, a, um, a, a cannabis control board and we've created a, a new LLC. So the two are separate from each other. And, you know, we obviously wouldn't be testing our own product or anything like that. We'd have to go through a third party. Um, so I think a lot of it just depends upon how regulated or unregulated your efforts are, because most of the areas that have been rated were because they didn't have a license to cultivate. They didn't have a, you know, a control board or set regulations in place you know, mm -hmm. that, that I'm personally aware of. Okay. So and we, we want to, Yeah. And, I'm sorry. And what about, you know, the banking challenges and things like that? Have you folks been able to successfully establish a banking partner if, if necessary? We are still working as far as like where the revenue will go. I mean, we've been able to create a bank account to do expenditures for money going out. Um, obviously, we, we have some big banks that are very interested, but because of the Safe Bank Act's not been passed yet, they, they can't go into that venture. But 
you know, credit unions, uh, community banks, you know, the smaller you go, the more likelihood you'll find somebody. Um, but but we we are still looking for as far as when our sales go into place in, in the next year that we'll have a bank secured. All right. Well, thank you again, Jeremy. I understand you are headed out to the Southwest uh, later this week for a little vacation. So safe travels to you and uh, looking forward to learning more about what's going on there in Cherokee, North Carolina. And James, want to thank you as well for all of your insights there at Santa Isabel in California. Again, having started a cannabis business in 2017, so five years worth of a business history there. Interesting, interesting conversation. Again, thank you so much for joining the show. And Sean here in studio, really appreciate all of your insights. Again, it is 420 day. So listeners, I don't know how you celebrate 420 day. Sean, how are you celebrating or do you celebrate 420? <laughs> I'm going back to work after this. <laughs> <laughs> That's the smart, safe answer, right? For sure. We're going back to work after the show today. No comment. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, that is all the time we have for our show today. So again, another big thank you to Sean Griswold, Jeremy Wilson, and James Bucaro. We are back live again tomorrow, and I'll be talking about recent incidents that highlight the need to protect rock art and other places that are important or sacred for Native people. I'm Sean Spruce. You've been listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Hey, CMS programs are available to help manage diabetes in our communities. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian healthcare provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.